Well, let's try this. Good morning, Watts Bar Church. Oh, you look awesome today. You look incredible. Hey, let me share something with you that I don't think you realize. I really don't think you realize this. Um, for 39 years, I've had the privilege of serving the Church of Jesus, and I love it. And I've traveled all over the place to serve the church, preached in some really, really huge churches. And I don't think you realize, Watts Bar Community Church, the quality of the pastors, plural, that God has allowed to serve you week in and week out. I'm talking about your senior pastor, Pastor Kelly, his wife, Denise. I'm talking about, I love being able to say this next phrase, Pastor Casey and his lovely wife, Tiffany. I mean... Pastor Ben, Amanda, Austin, Brianna, um, uh, Bobby, Bobby and Kelsey, you have such A-list leaders in this community. And sometimes when I challenge congregations to show appreciation, they do a little golf clap. Now, we're from Tennessee. Nobody here watches golf. Uh, if they do, you're the oddity. But very few people watch golf. So I want us to give one of those cheers that they gave last night at the Tennessee ball game. I, watched, I mean, 63 points, good grief. We sang Rocky Top so many times. I mean, if you haven't got it memorized, you should have it memorized by now. I want you to let your pastoral team know how much you love and appreciate them. Give it up for them right now. Let them know that. Wow, we love you guys. We love you guys. Oh, that's beautiful. That's, that's, that's beautiful. Hey, I'm going to dive in in just a second, but let me tell you this quick story before I share with you a deeper story and a more serious story. A guy was hanging out at the country club one day, of all places. He was in the locker room getting dressed, and all of a sudden, a phone on the bench rang. He just used that speakerphone option to answer the phone, and he said, hello. Hey, hey, babe, on the other end was a woman. Are you, are you at the club? Yes, I am. Well, I was out shopping today, and I saw a brand new coat. It's leather. It's incredibly beautiful. It's $2,000. I know it's a lot, but could I get it? He said, well, babe, if you like it that much, go ahead, splurge. Go ahead and get the coat. She went on. She said, well, well, while I'm talking to you, I also happened to be with a friend earlier today, and we dropped by the Mercedes dealership, and they've got the new models in, and they had a model that was so incredible, but the price tag is, is $200,000. Could, could, could we go for it? And he said, well, well sweetheart, uh, sure, if you really like it, let's go for it. But at 200 k we've got to have a car that's got all the options. She said, okay, I'll go back and ask. She said, oh, one, one more thing. You know, Sarah called me and Sarah was talking to me about the house that we liked last year. It's on the market this year. And they're, they're asking $2.2 million. What do you think we should do? He said, well, babe, you really like that house? Offer them two. They'll probably take it. But if they don't take it, we can go for the extra two hundred k. Go ahead and do that. Okay, sweetheart. I love you so much. Thank you for talking with me. Love you too. See you later. Bye. The guys in the locker room were astounded. They're looking at this guy like he had just come from another planet. He looked at all of them and he said, uh, does anybody know who this phone belongs to? (laughs) 
that's a great one right there. Um, someone said this, if you want to impress people, share your successes. If you want to change people, share your failures. So today, I want to share with you failure. I want, I want to share with you my failure. I want to share it in the form of a testimony. Now, here, here's why testimony is so critical. Psalm 107, verse number 2 says this, Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Say so. Tell their story. Say so. Uh, Revelation 12, 11, we'll skip a verse ahead in the verses I gave you on ProPresenter. Revelation 12, verse 11 says this, They defeated him, they overcame him, they triumphed over him, whichever translation you want to use, by the blood of the Lamb and by the, fill in the blanks, the word of their testimony. In other words, there's power in sharing your story. There's even power in sharing stories of failure where God came through. Revelation 19, verse 11, it will come up on the screen, and it reads like this. Then I fell down. John is writing, and John, John has this amazing vision. An angel delivers the vision, and John writes, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and of your brothers who hold to the, anybody see the word said out loud? Testimony of Jesus. Worship God for, say it again, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here's what prophecy is about. Prophecy either foretells the future or causes a change in the present, says Bill Johnson. A testimony then becomes catalytic in its ability to bring about a change of atmosphere in the present, making room for supernatural release. Testimonies prophesy God's intent and nature to anybody who hears them. So today, a testimony. Our testimony. And by the way, in case anybody gets nervous in the first part of this story, I have my wife's permission to share this story. On March 25th, 2022, six months ago, my personal world came crashing down. I knew there were stress fractures in our marriage, but I didn't realize that the fractures had become fault lines, and those lines were starting to shift, eventually bringing an earthquake that would rock my world. It would rock me, it would rock my family, it would change the trajectory of my career. That Friday evening, my wife of almost 39 years at the time left. She called later saying, I didn't want to do this on the phone, but I've left you. I've hired a lawyer. I'm divorcing you. You're controlling. You're manipulative. 39 years of emotional abuse is enough. Now, perception is stronger than reality, and that is how my wife honestly felt in that moment. I was stunned. I was devastated. I was confused. I stood in the chaos and aftermath of the debris swirling all around me. And it's important for me to point out 
This wasn't customary conversation for me and my wife. In almost 39 years of marriage, we had never spent a night apart because we were ticked at the other. In 39 years of marriage, she never walked out the door, slammed it, saying, I'm gone, I'm never coming back, neither did I. And it's also important for me to point out My wife didn't walk out on our marriage due to any single catastrophic issue. She didn't leave because of adultery, unfaithfulness on either her part or mine. Addiction, alcohol, drugs, porn, abuse, physical or verbal. But Solomon said this, and this is a wise word. If you are married, this is a wise word from Solomon, chapter 2, 15. Catch all the foxes, the little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of our love. See, the death of our marriage was death by a thousand paper cuts. It was the slow, painful, cumulative damage and devastation brought on about one too many seemingly insignificant problems coupled with years of distraction on my part, busyness, workaholism on my part, and neglect. Both of us had felt the distance and been feeling it for months, maybe longer. Both of us were in significant personal pain. Both of us continued to wear our masks. We wore them quite well because, after all, we were pastors and we were supposed to have it all together. But on March 25th, my wife reached her breaking point where she could no longer play charades or wear the mask and felt like her only option was to leave. I immediately called my board. They counseled me, Chris, at this point, don't attempt to contact her. Give her time. Give her space. I listened to their counsel, but in the coming days, I received a letter from Janet's attorney indicating that she had been hired to seek, here's the language, to seek the dissolution of your marriage and encouraging me to seek legal legal counsel on my own. Despair began to settle in as I contemplated the end of my life as I'd known it. You see, Janet is the only girl I've ever dated, ever. We began dating at 16 and 14. We were married rather unwisely, mind you, at 18 and 16. If any of my children attempted that, I would be in jail for various reasons. (laughs) For the next almost 40 days, my wife didn't communicate with me except through text or email, only occasionally at that, and that communication was related to bills or financial concerns. We didn't talk on the phone or in person for more than 40 days. Finally, on Monday, May 2nd, my wife agreed to meet with me in person, but only if three people accompanied her. I affectionately, I'm saying that sarcastically, called them her bouncers. It ticked me off. That conversation was strained at best. It only lasted 35 minutes. I begged for reprieve. I begged, just press pause, please. I've been working rather diligently for the last 40-some-odd days. 
working on myself. Give me 90 more days. Let's see what God can do. My wife said, I'll consider it, but I'm not promising anything. We agreed to communicate, or I suggested, I should say it that way. I suggested that we communicate once a week on Monday in person. But before the next Monday rolled around, I received a call from a person I'd talked to because friends of mine said, Chris, I know you don't want this, but you need legal counsel. So I'd talked with a lawyer, but I refused to hire him. And he called and said, Chris, I just got a call from Janet's attorney. And if you don't hire me, they're going to show up at your home. They're going to send an officer to the court to show up at your home and serve you divorce papers. She's dead set on going through a divorce. Furthermore, she's indicated to her attorney she doesn't want to talk to you. She doesn't want to see you. Any and all communication should come through either me or her attorney. It's over. I could feel hopelessness settle in on me. That night I had to go to a business meeting with the church board because in the wake of Janet's departure, I resigned the church that I'd founded. You may accuse me of a lot of things, but you'll, you'll never be able to accuse me of not taking God's word seriously. The scripture says this, if you can't, lead your own family, you can't possibly lead the church of God. Knowing that I had failed to love my wife as Christ loved the church, I felt it was irresponsible to think I could possibly lead God's people. I was meeting with the board that night to discuss that with the weight of my wife having communicated through her attorney that this is final. Made it through that meeting. That weekend was Mother's Day weekend. I knew that my children would be celebrating with my wife as they should. But then I became aware, no, the whole family is going to be there. This would be the first holiday that I had missed, not celebrating with our family. As you people know, my mother had died two years prior, so I wasn't with my wife, I wasn't with my mother, and my mother-in-law, whom I've known practically all my life, remember dating at 16 and 14, married at 18 and 16. I wasn't connected with her during this point as well. Despair slipped in. Uh, I went on my own style of bender. Those of you who know me will know what I mean. I'm a total abstainer from alcohol. Uh, that, that, that's not a statement of pride. It's just a realization that addiction runs in my family. I really carry this awareness that I have addictive tendencies in me. In fact, my wife would say, you don't have addictive tendencies. You do some, in some areas of your life, act like an addict. So I went on my own bender. I went and vegged out on pizza, two pints of Jenny's ice cream, all the popcorn I could eat. I just ate all day long. Got up Sunday morning, opened God's word, because not a day of my life goes by that I don't begin with the word of God. I don't read God's word daily because I think I'm super spiritual. I read God's word every day because I'm so stinking desperate. I need to hear from God. 
I made it through Bible reading, but my desperation had become so acute that I picked up my computer, opened up Google, and Googled this, painless ways to end your life. I was six pages into that Google. How many of you know that our God, our God cares more deeply about us than we can imagine? All of a sudden, I got a call from an unknown number. It's 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Nobody calls me on Sunday morning. 9 o'clock, unknown number. I answer the phone, Chris. It's Dan Stahlbaum. I had met Dan at a pastor's retreat just days before a retreat for pastors in crisis. And Dan said, Chris, I was just driving down the road and I had this overwhelming sense that I needed to call you right now. People, you can argue all you want about the existence of God, but that very reality that I'm contemplating suicide and God speaks to a pastor hundreds of miles away and said, I needed to call you right now is evidence in my opinion that there is a God, a God who cares deeply about his kids. Dan began to pour encouragement in me. And then Dan said to me, Chris, there's a clinic, it's called Sanctuary Clinics, and they have a program for pastors, broken pastors just like you. And dude, I know you went to a three-day retreat, but somebody struggling like you're struggling, you need more than three days, you need at least 30. Would you be open to me having the director, he's a personal friend of mine, would you be open to me having him call you, knowing that I'd reached the end? contemplating the reality that I've got to figure out life on my own. I said, sure, I'll, I'll do anything. I drove up to my daughter's house and I said, girls, if they will take me, I'm going into a 30-day program for pastors. By that evening, the director had called me. I spent over an hour on the phone with him. The next day, I had an hour and a half eval with that clinic, by that evening, I was signed up to go. And get this, it wasn't at a small cost. It was money that I didn't have. But to tell you how good God is, the next morning, I picked up the phone and made three calls. And in less than an hour, I had more than the money required to go to that clinic and get the treatment that I so desperately needed. Again, we're talking major God stuff. Monday, I was ticked. I was ticked because of Mother's Day. I was ticked because I'd contemplated suicide. I was ticked because here I am going into a 30-day treatment center to try to find out what's going on with me emotionally. I'd lost down to below my high school weight. I was skin and bones. My eyes were sunk back into my head. I was just ticked. So I picked up my computer and I shot off three emails to my wife. I knew this. We had to be out of the, uh, the loft that we were leasing by the end of the month. But I was going into a 30-day treatment program, which meant I needed to be out at the end of the week before I checked into the program. So I knew I needed to talk with my wife. And I wrote three emails and they were caustic. They were, they were angry. They were just, you know, they might even had... Egyptian words in them. I mean, they, they, were just, they were just that. I didn't send any of them. 
wisely. I remember the words of my counselor. Just be short, be direct. So I sent an email that said something like this. Janet, I desperately need to meet with you. There are some major things that you need to be aware of. And if you don't meet with me in person, I'm not going to share them via email or text. And by the way, don't bring the bouncers. I'll be at O'Henry's, our favorite coffee shop, from 5 to 6, if that works for you. I didn't know that she would respond because just three days prior, so she had said, no communication. Eight minutes later, she said, I'll be there at 6. I was, for some reason, excited. She was going to meet with me in person without bouncers. You would have thought I was going out on a date. I showered, I shaved, I put on a white dress shirt, white or black slacks. And, you know, when you're emotionally deregulated, you come up with all these scenarios in your mind that may or may not be accurate. And the emotional scenario I created in my mind was this. If Janet shows up and she looks pretty, that means she's interested. Like, if she tried. If she shows up and it looks like she just rolled out of bed, well, that means she's had it, it's over, we're done, it's gone. Her car pulled up. She stood up wearing this cute little black dress. One thought that hit me is how appropriate to wear a black dress to this meeting, which might be the death of our marriage. Another thought was, she looks amazing. We took our seat on the patio of O'Henry's Coffee. Mind you, we hadn't spoken in person now for almost 50 days. And what lawyers said was impossible. God began to change both of our hearts that night. I won't go into the conversation. But what I can tell you is this. After two and a half hours of talking... Closing down O'Henry's. I left there with hope. I cried all the way home. I worshiped all the way home. I spoke to God in spiritual language all the way home. When I got home, I came through the door. Dallas, my dog, was there, and he knew something was up because he kept looking at me like I was a crazy man. All I could do was walk around that loft crying, praising, singing, worshiping. I refused to turn on the television. I didn't want anything to numb the power of what I felt like God was doing. I laid down in bed. I cried more. I worshiped more. I prayed more. And then I got this odd thought in my head. I wonder if Janet has texted me. She had asked me to be very, very sparse in my communication, so I was doing that. But I had this idea, I wonder if she's texted me. If she has texted me, that will mean there really is hope. I rolled over. I didn't have my glasses. I rolled over. I just opened up the text app, and I saw right at the top, even without glasses, I could read Janet. And I thought, oh, praise the Lord, there's hope. 
read the text. Basically, the text said something like this. Hey, tomorrow the kids are getting their puppy. I'm babysitting. It's not right that you not be there. I'm the dog lover in our family. I love, love dogs. She said, it's not right that you're not there. Why don't you come up and join? Chelsea's going to be navigating that. I know she'll feel off and whether or not she should invite you or not. But you, you definitely need to be there. And I'm like texting back, thank you, thank you, thank you. What time? Well, I'm babysitting the kids all day so you can come any time and trying to play it cool. I said, well, I've got some appointments, but I will, I I think I had one appointment. I will be there. Went up and we babysat babysat the grandkids for three three and a half hours. The first time we'd been together with our grandkids in 50 days. And at the end, I said, would you go have dinner with me? said, yeah. We went to Baja Burger in Birmingham, Alabama. If you're ever there, Baja Burger, my favorite burger joint, my favorite burger joint. I take everybody who comes to Birmingham to Baja Burger. We ordered our food, went out on the patio. Neither of us ate any of those amazing, wonderful burgers. (laughs) Because for four and a half hours, God began to do what we could not do. I cried. She cried. Very interesting. She cried because in the only email she sent me during those 50 days in which she expressed any kind of thoughts about our marriage, most of it was just about bills. She had said in that email, I can't even cry around you anymore. But that night we both cried. And we've we both cried so many times since. Repentance flowed. I asked if I could hold her hand. She let me. I tried to sneak a kiss. She wasn't having it that night. (laughs) I told her, I love you. She said, I'm not going to let myself say that. I care deeply about you, but I won't let myself say those words. Not now. Walked out to the car. I said, I love you. And all of a sudden, she said, I love. And she caught herself. She became a little frustrated. And she said, see, see, I do love you. And I have ever since I was a little girl. Well, we said goodbye. And when I got in my white truck to drive to that loft that night, if I was on cloud nine the night before, you couldn't measure the clouds this night. Janet had told me, Uh, Hey, I'll be by tomorrow to help you pack up. It's not right that you do all the packing alone. Has anybody ever moved with your spouse before you moved from one house to another with your spouse? Anybody ever painted a wall with your spouse? Anybody ever did a remodel project? If you just want to create room for arguments, move together, paint a wall together, do a home improvement project, it is a sure way to start an argument. Here's how I knew God was showing up in our marriage. My wife showed up to help me pack. We had friends there helping us. And we worked so diligently. One of our friends, she's a feisty little short woman. She's feisty. And all she knew is that her pastor and his wife were separated. 
she pulled us together. She saw that we were actually smiling with one another and being kind because we didn't, we didn't want to give any false hopes to anybody. She just pulled us. She said, we're going to pray. And she prayed this thought about God bringing, bringing them together and this prayer of blessing. And another friend was there. His name is Jim. And Jim saw us actually being kind to one another and uh, loving one another. He made us sit down on the steps, and he had to take a picture. And it's one of my favorite pictures to this day. I couldn't wait for company to leave. Their help was so good. Thank you, Lord, for friends who will help you pack. That is a true friend right there. But I couldn't wait for them to leave because I wanted to talk to my wife. And that night we talked and talked and talked and talked practically all night long. And by the way, that night she did let me kiss her. Praise the Lord. The next five days, I knew that I needed to go to Sanctuary Clinic, so I did not change my plan, even though God was doing a work. But the next five days, Janet and I worked together, packing an apartment. And Janet has looked back at that and said, Chris, God gave us the honeymoon we never had. Now, I want you to think about that. We were packing. We were working. See, we got married at 18 and 16, and we supposedly had a honeymoon. My Aunt Christine, who's gone on to heaven now, so I can say this out loud, and if she wants to get mad, she can get mad while she's in heaven, but I think she's too busy having a good time. But my Aunt Christine had said to me, Chris, you and Janet get married. You can come to Pensacola. You can use my house, spend all your time at the beach. Guess what? We took her up on that deal, and guess who followed us to Pensacola, Florida? My Aunt Christine and Uncle Vincent. It ain't a honeymoon if aunt and uncle are in the house with... That's not a honeymoon. God turned that situation immediately. I went to Sanctuary Clinic, spent 30 days there. And let let me just say this. We've done ministry 39 years. And I know everybody has a tough job. So I don't want you to hear me whining or complaining about ministry because I don't feel that way. In fact, my wife will tell you I love ministry. It's part of what led to our problems. Because I love ministry more than I loved her. Something happens when you serve people for 39 years. So for those 30 days, God just kept breaking me down and putting me back together. I talked with Dr. David, who ran the program, and said, can my wife come and see me on the weekend? He said, absolutely. Now, she can't stay here, but she can come and see you. You and her can stay somewhere in Tallahassee, or we found a little bed and breakfast. And for two weekends, God gave us two of the most beautiful weekends in our life. We would stay there. We would come in for treatment, come in for counseling. They did couples therapy with us there, work with us together. And God just kept building and kept building and kept building. One morning, I opened up God's Word. My Bible reading plan had me in Hosea, and I read these words. It'll come up on the screen, but you can bring them up. Come, let us return to the Lord. 
He has torn us that he may heal us. He has injured us. Now he will bandage our wounds. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he'll restore us that we may live in his presence. I'm reading that, thinking through that, and all of a sudden, these are the thoughts I wrote in my devotional journal that morning. What if the Lord has torn us that he may heal us? What if God knew that I would never make the course corrections necessary to live a rich, satisfying life and experience a thriving, mutually fulfilling marriage? So he did what I could never do. He took what was most precious to me, my relationship with my, my wife, to give me a glimpse of what the life I was so unattentively living would eventually end up costing me. What if God allowed the events that unfolded beginning March 25th because he had something much better in mind what if God wanted to show Janet and myself what he could do if we would truly lean into him instead of relying on our performance perfectionism selfish demands and passionless existence what if he tore us to heal us what if he injured us so he could bandage our wounds what if God allowed our separation so that after two days he could revive us so that he could awaken our souls to love to passion to life scholars are quick to point out that two days in that passage refers to a very short time. What seems like eternity to us, 50 days, is but a bleep blip on the map to God. What if God allowed the misunderstanding and the pain in our marriage and relationship so that on the third day he could restore us, raise us, and resurrect us? By the way, scholars say that on the third day he will restore us. Has to be pointing forward to what God would do when he raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. And it's interesting to me that while we were separated, one morning God gave me this passage, John chapter 12, verse number 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. That day God said to me, Chris, Janet is not coming back to the old marriage and Janet is not coming back to the old man if you want to see me restore your life the old you has got to die the marriage that was has got to die but if you'll release them to me and let them both die watch what my power can do when I raise that man from the dead and when I bring that marriage back to life I can do what you can't do trust me with your marriage trust me with your life I shared that Hosea passage with my wife, and she texted me back with all my heart, Chris. I believe God allowed what happened on March 25th. This is while I was at the clinic. He knew our hearts would be crushed. He knew we weren't truly living in his presence because in his presence there's fullness of joy, and there was no joy in our lives or in our marriage. But he's the one that drew our hearts to one another as kids. He knew that what he had joined together no man could separate. That separation was our doing. God knew how our hearts would respond because our Father knows how deeply we desire to love Him. He was working behind the scenes the whole time and we didn't even know it, completely oblivious to His activity because we were so lost in our pain. But God tore us so He could heal us. 
He injured us so he could bandage up our wounds. Now, maybe you're saying, Chris, are you saying that God did all of that? No, I'm not saying that for a moment, but I am saying this. What the evil one intended for our destruction, God planned for our good. God wanted to do what we couldn't do. He wanted to raise us back to life. Two of my favorite texts came the morning of June 7th. I get a text from that guy that I'd never really hired as a lawyer, but then hired, at least I gave him $750, which doggone it, he's never given back because he didn't have to do anything. But I received a text saying, hey, Janet's lawyer just reached out to me and indicated that They have asked the court to dismiss the case. At 1042, I received this text from my wife. I just got an email for dismissal from my attorney. Thank you, Jesus, she wrote. This is no longer our future. I love you so much. So, 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 so very much. My forever and always husband and best friend. That is the power of our awesome God. So I've got three applications for you. It won't take long. Don't worry. I'm not preaching another 20-minute sermon. Three, three applications. You ready? Number one, never stop doing the work. Over the first 45 days of our separation, I put over 100 hours of work. I took a calculator out and calculated it into our marriage. What what do you mean work? I'm talking about meeting with counselors sometimes two and three times a week, sometimes for hours at a time. I met with a small group of friends sometimes for hours. Friends who love me but aren't impressed with me so they will kick my rear end if it's needed. I spent hours reading books. If you haven't heard of the work of marriage helpers, I spent hours going through that the materials that marriage helpers provide. Over 100 hours. I say that to you to say this. Why didn't I do that for 39 years? I helped other people do that. But I neglected to work on my own marriage. Husbands, I want to challenge you. Work on your marriage. Let me adjust that. Because my wife has helped me see that I would often say I'm the only one who wants to work on our marriage. She said, Chris, you didn't want to work on our marriage. You wanted to work on me. Husbands, work on you. See, my marriage failed because I failed to love my wife as Christ loved the church. If I had loved her as Christ loved the church, she would have never left because she would have had no reason to leave. So husbands, do the work. But husbands, you're not alone. My wife would be quick to tell you. Wives have got to do the work too. In fact, couples have got to do the work. She too has spent hours and hours and hours with counselors and in books and in programs. Never stop doing the work. Ladies and gentlemen, as I look back on what happened to us, I know 
that it wasn't simply two people reaching an impasse. We have an enemy. We have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And he had a bead on our marriage because if he could take down our marriage, he would destroy our children. He would destroy years of ministry. That was what we were up against. Never stop doing the work. It matters too. Never stop doing life with people who love Jesus like crazy and love you relentlessly. Let me, let me just say, there are divorced cheerleaders in this world. If you're surrounded by friends who are not cheering for your marriage and you're married, it's critical you find a new set of friends. I've got to say that again because some of you push back. If you're surrounded by people who are not cheering your marriage and you are married, find a new set of friends. They can give you wise counsel that might even say you need to separate or divorce is your only alternative at this point while also simultaneously cheering the marriage. Because let's make no mistake about it, God's plan is marriage. It's reconciliation. That's always his heart. Anybody who is not cheering your marriage, anybody who is bad-mouthing your spouse is not a good or a true friend. It's a good word. I'm going to clap for myself right there. Part of our problem was that we weren't surrounded by friends. As pastors, we were so busy serving other people that we didn't have a lot of couple friends who were cheering us on because we were too busy for those kinds of interactions. Thankfully, we had individual friends who walked with us together. I mean, I'll never be able to repay Casey, who drove to Birmingham, to spend time with me. Not only a brother, my friend, Kelly, who drove to Birmingham to spend time with me. Jeremy Self, who flew from Austin, Texas, repeatedly because he refused to give up on me. Stephen Burton, who had come from Dallas, Georgia because he refused to give up on me. Kevin Johnson, who is a part of the church there in Birmingham, who checked on me relentlessly even though I drove him crazy and got so angry with me one day that he hollered at me in Panera Bread. He screamed at me. That's a true friend, somebody who loves you enough that they'll do whatever's necessary to get your attention. Build a strong network of people who love you and love your marriage. Third, never stop believing in God's ability to do more than you ever thought possible. I wish I could tell you I had great faith. I didn't. I was so broken during that period. But here's what I have discovered. It was never about me anyway. It's all about Him. I've discovered the truth of Ephesians 3.20. God can do anything you know far more than you can ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. I've got to say that again because some of you missed the verse. God can do anything you know far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by his spirit working gently within us. And God has done immeasurably more than Janet and I can think or ask. And for that, we give God all the glory. Could you join me in expressing thanksgiving to God?
That's our story. It's still being written. But that's the story. Now, here's what I believe. I felt like God gave me this word on testimony. And quite frankly, I was scared to share it because it's still really raw with me. And I knew I would become emotional. But last night, God said, you need to share your story. And gave me a word that, that what happens when we share our testimony, even if our breakthrough is in the area of marriage, it can build faith in the room for breakthrough in other areas of life, whether it's family, whether it's physical healing, whether it's finances, whether it's career. So I just want us to worship for a moment, and then I'm going to ask you, if you need breakthrough in any area of life, we're going to pray for you, and breakthrough is on the way today. Hey, let me get that microphone right there. Can we do what we did last time, Bobby? Is that the key I need to sing in?